Okay. Good morning, everyone. It's nice to see you. Um, uh, I, I asked for this passage, um, but I thought I was only getting the transfiguration. <laughs> but actually, that's not even, in some ways, the greatest part. So uh, live and learn. Um, today we are studying Mark 9, verses 2 to 32. And one way to describe that situation is that the heat is on. It's about three years into Jesus' ministry, and the pressure is rising. The crowds are bigger, and the Jewish leaders are angrier. And Jesus knows they will soon be going to Jerusalem, a trip he will not return from. All of biblical history has been moving in this direction since sin entered the world. The clock is ticking on these events that will change the course of human history. It all hinges on what will unfold in Jerusalem in a few weeks. And we are almost there. But there is a problem. Jesus' disciples are not ready for what is about to happen. It is contrary to everything they have been taught about the Messiah. Doug Green, a former elder here at New Life, used to say, Jesus is the surprising fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. He was just not the kind of Messiah they expected. Now, true, the disciples recognize that he is more than like a regular prophet. They know they are part of something big and good. But they are stuck in their own worldview about how this was supposed to play out. Though Peter has declared him to be the Messiah, none of them see Jesus truly. Nobody did. These misconceptions about the Messiah were pervasive among the Jews because they focused on the prophecies about the warrior king, Messiah, the heir to the throne of David. But those prophecies are about Jesus' second coming at the end of time. This was his first coming in which he is suffering. He is the suffering servant Messiah of Isaiah 53, the one who will be crushed for our iniquities and cut off from the land of the living. He is to be the ultimate Passover lamb who will die to save his people from the curse of death. He was not there to lead a rebellion. That last battle was to come later, and we are still waiting for it. The disciples were not in conflict with Jesus like the Jewish leadership was. They were just confused and slow to catch on. So to help them, Jesus has pulled them away from their usual stomping grounds so he can spend time alone with them and teach them more directly. He is laying the foundation for them to know the truth so that they will at least remember it after he rises from the dead. Now, there are three parts to today's passage. And part one is the transfiguration. And the application or the action step for this part of the passage is listen. Listen to Jesus. Part two is the healing of the demon-possessed boy. And the action step for this portion is believe. Believe in Jesus. And part three, Jesus repeats the prediction of his death and resurrection and the action step is ask. Ask Jesus for help. We will see that despite these more secluded times with Jesus and two truly momentous events, 
The disciples aren't saying much to Jesus anyway. And they aren't doing well. And we need to pay attention to their struggles because we are disciples too. We also have the mistaken expectations about Jesus and what it means to follow him. And we are slow to learn. We may not struggle with the idea of a divine savior that died and rose from the dead, but we will still struggle with the same basic issues of faith, listening, believing, and asking Jesus for help. The subject matter is just a little bit different. So let's do part one, the transfiguration. Jesus is the son of God, and the father says, listen to him. A few days after their conversation in chapter eight about denying self and taking up your cross, Jesus takes Peter and the brothers, James and John, up on a high mountain by themselves. Well, the first question about this is, why does he take only three of the disciples and why these three, right? Well, (laughs) we don't know. Scripture doesn't say. However, there are two other times when Jesus singles out the same three to come with him. The first is in Mark 5, when Jesus brings brings them with him into the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. His daughter had been very sick and died, and they witnessed Jesus bring her back to life. The transfiguration is the second time, and that he has only these three with him. And then later, he does the same at Gethsemane. Clearly, Peter was being groomed to be a leader, and John was to live the longest of the disciples and wrote a gospel, which interestingly does not include the transfiguration. Um, He also wrote three epistles and the book of Revelation. So you might think it was long-term future impact that motivated Jesus to take these three. But James sadly dies early in the young church. In Acts 12, it says that King Herod, who is the grandson of Herod the Great, put him to death by the sword. So we don't really know what Jesus is thinking here. Now, where is this happening? It says it's on a high mountain, which is assumed to be Mount Hermon on the present-day Syria-Lebanon border. It's high enough to have snow on it in the colder months, and it's not that far from where they are, which is north of Galilee. And if you have your maps, you can look at this later. But, you know, you were all given these maps at the beginning, right? And see where I have the pink dot? They're, it's probably up about there. And you got to notice, you know, this is the Sea of Galilee, so they're way north of it. You've got to remember they walked everywhere. And Jerusalem's way down here. So he is really taking them to an out-of-the-way place. Um, let's see. God likes mountains, right? (laughs) He uses them for important events, such as the almost sacrifice of Isaac by Abraham, the burning bush, and the giving of the law to Moses. But what happens there? Well, in Matthew, it says they went up to pray. And as Jesus was praying, his appearance and his clothes changed. Mark describes his clothes as dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. What they are seeing here is Jesus' glory breaking through. They are seeing the God part of the God-man. Scripture uses bright light to describe God's glory. It's the same light that was present in the cloud, 
that leads Israel through the wilderness by day and the pillar of fire by night. And the same as that shown around the shepherds when the angel appeared to announce Jesus's birth. In simple terms, at the transfiguration, Jesus is showing the disciples he is God, that the Messiah is indeed divine. But you might be thinking, well, the disciples know this, right? Well, not really, not fully. To them, the Messiah was to be the greatest leader ever sent by God. But divine? Maybe, but that was much less well understood. Remember, other prophets had healed people and had raised others from the dead. Not in the same numbers as Jesus, but still they did do it. So the uncertainty of the disciples is understandable. But much more happens. Elijah and Moses appear and talk with Jesus. Why them? Again, we don't know. It doesn't say, but we can speculate with a little more certainty here. As the questions for the passage that you looked at today, they represent major aspects of the Old Testament. Moses brought the Israelites the law, and Elijah was one of the greatest prophets. So one possible reason is that they represent these two great forms of revelation, and by seeing them next to the transfigured Jesus, it's apparent that he is even greater than them, their greatest leaders. But they both also have a prophetic role in Jesus' story. Toward the end of his ministry, Moses had prophesied that a Messiah would come. He wrote, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you. Your fellow Israelites, you must listen to him. Remember that word must from last week. At the end of the Old Testament, then, it was also prophesied that Elijah would come back before the great prophet, that Moses had written about had arrived. Now the disciples were already terrified with the radiant Jesus and the two prophets, but there's still more that happens. A cloud appears and covers them all. This is more glory. A cloud. God appeared as a cloud on the top of Mount Sinai and then led them to the promised land with it. And then more. A voice comes out of the cloud. It's Yahweh the Father, God. He had spoken aloud to Jesus at his baptism, but here he speaks to the disciples and says, This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. In most of the classic paintings of this event, and there are many, the disciples are depicted like this. I mean, <laughs> and as we would be also. They are terrifying. Now, it's an interesting use of words by the father here. This is my son. Listen to him. It's more evidence of who Jesus is. He is God's son, which is another proof that he is divine. And by using the same words as Moses, listen to him, the father confirms Jesus is the prophet prophesied by Moses. And it tells him, um, sorry, excuse me. And the word listen here means more than just hearing, okay? It tells them to accept his words, accept Jesus' words are true. In effect, the father says, my son Jesus speaks the truth. You have believed the words of Moses and Elijah. Jesus, too, speaks for me. 
So in this incredible moment in time, we see the past, the present, and the future all at one point. The past is Moses and Elijah. The present is Jesus. And his disciples now see Jesus, what Jesus predicted in just a few verses earlier in 9 verse 1, that the kingdom of God has come with power. And the future? His glory foreshadows how he will look when he rises from the dead and then returns at the second coming. God's plan to save his people is so much bigger than restoring an oppressed country to its previous glory. It is the power over death itself. Well, the the cloud disappears, and they are alone again with Jesus. And as they walk down the mountain, he asks them not to share what they have seen with anyone until he says, the Son of Man rises from the dead. They obey him in this, though it says they still did not understand what rising from the dead might mean, and apparently did not ask. The problem here is that personal resurrection was not part of Jewish theology. This is why when Jesus says to Martha about Lazarus, your brother will rise again, she says, I know he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day, you know, when all faithful Jews will rise. But that's not what Jesus is getting at. He says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He is the exception, the firstborn from the dead, the only one not to die again. He is the wonderful, perfect exception. But it is hard to believe something that has never happened before. And the disciples may have heard the words, but did not listen. But the disciples did listen about Elijah. They accept that though Elijah himself did not return, John the Baptist fulfilled this prophecy. Perhaps the prophecy meant, uh, meant that one in the spirit of Elijah would come. John, like Elijah, was willing to speak truth to power and confront falsehood in some pretty dramatic ways. But the more important point here is that Jesus also says John's suffering and death is a foreshadowing of his own. Now, this event, the Transfiguration, is encouraging to us though maybe not quite as momentous as it would have been for the disciples. Still, the action step from this passage is the same for them and for us. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. We listen by first accepting these revelations as true and when when we come to faith. But we also need to listen to him during our walk with him. Jesus reveals himself here to strengthen the disciples' faith, and we still need that. What has he been saying to you lately? And are you listening? Part two of the passage is this. Jesus heals a boy possessed by an unclean spirit, demonstrating the power of faith. Jesus and the disciples arrive back where the other nine are, and they walk into a hornet's nest. There is a crowd, and they flock to Jesus. And the disciples are arguing with some of the Jewish leaders And it's quickly learned that the disciples were asked to cast out a demon from a young boy and had failed. Jesus is not pleased with this situation. For one thing, there is a crowd, and he is trying to keep a low profile. And they all saw his disciples fail. In this frustration, he says to the crowd, including the disciples, You unbelieving generation, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. 
Now, was that his tone? I don't know. <laughs> he might have been more exasperated, um, but at least I get nervous when I think Jesus is angry, you know? I mean, Jesus is human, and we who so easily believe in his divinity, I think, sometimes struggle with his humanity. But maybe that's just me. I don't know. Anyway, they brought the boy to him, and we overhear Jesus' interaction with the boy's father. When the spirit sees Jesus, he throws the boy into a violent convulsion. And Jesus asks, well, how long has this been going on? I imagine even more was said between them. Notice this. Despite his displeasure with the scene, Jesus is caring to the boy's father, who then says to Jesus, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. To which Jesus replied, if you can. Everything is possible for one who believes. To which the man replied, with the best line of all time, which is, what? Yes, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. How many times have you heard that said from the pulpit or by another Christian? Some things are easier for us to believe than other things, but we surely all need more faith. Jesus had said so many times that it was a person's faith that made healing possible. What did Jesus say to Jairus about his daughter when all looked lost? Don't be afraid. Just believe. And he must have. And this father must have too, because the evil spirit leaves the boy. Now this is a backhanded way of realizing that it was not the father's lack of faith that hindered the disciples' ability to heal the boy. No, it was the disciples' lack of faith. Later in private, they ask Jesus why they could not cast out the demon. And Jesus says, this kind can only come out by prayer. Now, on the surface, that doesn't sound like a rebuke, like maybe they just left out a step, they forgot to pray. But it is a rebuke. In Matthew, he says to them, you couldn't do it because you have so little faith. It's true they had been able to do such things on their mission trip. But they need to stay dependent on Jesus to continue to do so. This story is so poignant to me, and the action step is very straightforward, but it is also not easy. Believe in Jesus. This is different from listening and acceptance. This is trusting him, relying on him. It's your faith that matters to him. He must be the object of your faith, because then... A tiny bit of faith, even as small as a mustard seed, has power because Jesus is the Son of God. It is faith that healed the woman with the 12 years of bleeding. It is faith that enabled the demon in the Syrophoenician woman's daughter to be expelled and the one in this young boy in this passage. These people risked a lot to step out and trust him. They admitted their weakness and helplessness and trusted him to help them. Tim Keller says that when we release our most precious needs to Jesus and trust him, not knowing what he will do is saving faith. That is saving faith. Have you submitted your most precious things to Jesus? You don't have to have it all together. The boy's father didn't, but he was humble enough to admit his weakness. We need to do likewise, sisters. Part three. Jesus predicts his death and resurrection a second time, and the disciples are silent. After this, they head further down, back towards Galilee, 
trying to stay to themselves because Jesus was still teaching them privately. Then Jesus repeats what he said in chapter 8 about dying and rising again, but he adds that it will happen by being delivered into the hands of men. So this adds an element of betrayal into the story. Truly, this prediction gets worse with each telling. But Mark says they still did not understand what he meant that he will rise and were afraid to ask him about it. This is just sad. Um, Do you think he wants them to ask him? I do. And clearly, if Peter is the one who told these events to Mark, he is showing regret over their fear. Why don't they ask? Perhaps they were shaken up by recent events and were afraid asking would once again show they had little faith. Or maybe they remember how Jesus rebuked Peter the first time he brought this up. Or maybe... Maybe it's denial. Have you ever had a sense of foreboding and wondered about something but did not really want to ask about it because you were afraid of the answer? It feels like if you ask, it will be true, and you know you can't face it. Were the disciples in denial? I don't know. But I'm sure they were devastated at the thought of him dying. And resurrection? Though they have, shown, though they have been shown it repeatedly, the dead, the dead can rise. It must have been a really hard thing for them to accept that he could come back to life himself. This is the time for them to share their fears and ask questions. When John the Baptist was struggling, what did he do? Though he was in prison, he sent his followers to ask Jesus this question. Are you the one to come or should we expect someone else? He thought judgment on the unrepentant would come sooner than it had. He thought it was taking too long, but he brought his question to the one who could answer it. The action step here is ask Jesus for help when you don't understand or when you are angry or confused or whatever. He is your older brother, your king and your God. You matter to him. If Jesus' cousin who had the Holy Spirit from conception had questions, It is okay for you to ask them too. So in summary of today's passage, listen and accept what Jesus teaches. Believe it and trust yourself to his care and ask him when you need help. I mean, it's not a formula and there is no order to these pieces. They work together no matter where you start. Now, our context is different from that of the disciples, but the essentials of faith are the same. The heat is still on, right? So let's walk out some final implications here. First, do you struggle to listen? What is God telling you lately? Do you make time to listen? I have only made time for him each day in the last few years, and he has to tell me the same thing over and over. Maybe that's true for you too. The message I hear is, you are not alone, and I am with you. But this isn't even the hardest part. I grew up believing that if I worked hard and was a good person, that my dreams would come true. I call it my Disney worldview. But life doesn't work like that. It's harder and more painful than I ever expected. And like the disciples, my expectations have been very hard to extinguish. I know in my head that my happily ever after will come, but not in this life. In this life, I will suffer, 
and accepting it is still hard. Is Jesus asking you to accept something hard? Second, do you struggle to believe at times? Are you actively seeking to deepen your trust in him? I think where trust is hardest among modern Christians is doubting God's goodness. We know his power, but we expect he will use it in particular ways, and when he doesn't, our faith can get wobbly. We look at the world and say, Jesus, how can you really be good and at the same time allow fill-in-the-blank, you know, another black man to be killed by police or 10,000 children to die every day from hunger or a de facto dictator to wage war on a neighboring country? You could fix it, Lord. Why don't you? How can we trust you when there is so much evil and suffering in the world and in my life? We need to pray like the father, <clears throat> the boy's father did. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Help me to trust that you are for me and will truly work out all things for me and the world for good. And this leads to the final question and the source of our help. Do you ask Jesus for help when you need it? Probably not often enough if you are like most of us. Like the disciples, we are more likely to talk to each other than to Jesus about our doubts and fears. But scripture urges us to cry out to him. Ask, seek, knock. You can use your own words or you can use scripture. There are numerous lament psalms that can give voice to what you are feeling. Like these words from Psalm 13. How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? Or you could use this uh, from Psalm 25. Show me your ways, Lord. Teach me your paths. He gave you these words to say back to him. Or you could use the words of Samuel. Speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. Or my favorite, the words of Hezekiah, king of Judah, when Jerusalem was surrounded by the massive Assyrian army, this was his prayer. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. He showed his people how to ask for help in what seemed like an impossible situation, and it rhymes. I love that. I love that part. <laughs> Often we grit our teeth and we try to go it alone, but God wants us to talk to him. Though he does do some important things on mountaintops, he has chosen to walk with us in the valleys. And he invites and even shows us how to stay close to him. It is when we put our heart on the table and ask for help that our faith will grow. He can do wonders with faith as small as a mustard seed. So let's offer him ours. Amen. Amen.